2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine or reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we're going to begin to transition here a little bit. Um, we've been in this series for a while now, and we're, we've been focused on, on essentially is what is it that God has equipped us with, and why do we need it, and what do we do with it. And we know a lot of stuff about the Bible. We know a lot of stuff about God, but to say that we are in a position where we intimately know God, it's like describing one of your children. If you describe one of your children, you talk about what they look like, you can talk about their personality, you know the sound of their voice, the sound of their voice cuts through a crowd to you, but nobody else. There's something about them, you, you know You know their smell or smells, because depending on if it's boys or girls, it could be all over the map. Now, I mean, there's everything about it. That's an intimate knowledge of somebody. When we talk about God, we literally talk about God, but we don't portray him in a way that's like we intimately know him. And a conversation that I had this week, early in the week, is with a young man, it's like, how do you know when you eliminate scripture, how do you know anything about God? Because the argument he was making is the God of the Old Testament can't be the same as the God of the New Testament. And the problem with that idea is, is what are we doing? We're undermining the veracity of scripture and making that statement. But then here's the problem. We would make that statement as a truth claim only in the fact that we don't understand the God of the Old Testament. We don't understand the structure of the scriptures in a, as a whole. You wouldn't make that claim if you really knew scriptures in that way, because then you could say, well, wait a minute, this is the same person. There's just a series of steps that are going on. It wasn't like he had a change of personality. He wasn't, you know, that, that father waiting to crush everybody in the Old Testament, and Jesus showed up and was like, no, oh, we're good now. That's not how that works. And so, when we talk about God and who God is, you can have an opinion, you can have an opinion, I can have an opinion, but that is all it is if it's not based in something. You see, if we eliminate Scripture, what we know about God comes from our experience. And that's it. And if we're going to base things off of our experience, then it's kind of wishy-washy. Because there will some people that will tell you that when I walk outside on a beautiful day, I can feel God in, the, in nature, I can feel his energy. I can feel his presence. Some will say when I burn sage, I'm creating an environment that God can come into. Some will tell you that when I pray, I pray to God. But yet when you drill down of whom they're praying to, it doesn't match the description of the God of the Bible. And the problem we have is that we have no foundation that we can build this on. So when we look at this and what we've been working on here and going through week by week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is that we need to understand that Scripture is the foundation. It starts with that. So what is this? Well, this is nothing more than a written down version of what God has said and what God has done. Is that fair? We see how God has interacted with people throughout the entirety of this, of this thing. So we'll talk about Paul, we'll talk about Ezekiel, we'll talk about Ezra and David and all these guys, but really they aren't at the center of the story. It was who God was interacting through them and with them. That's really the center of the story. Because if you look at the Old Testament, you were just summing up in a short little sentence, you would say that it is a story about a nation, being the nation of Israel. You put that into the New Testament, say it's about a man, that man being Jesus. So getting an understanding of what that is is so crucial, because otherwise, it is just a matter of opinion. So what has God equipped us with? That is the number one thing that we have to walk away from. So we have looked at the uh, armor of God, we looked at the gifts of the Spirit, but now we're going to drill down in a little bit different direction. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, because no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets the church and receives edification. There's three words in there. Edification, exhortation, comfort. We begin to look at this last week, looking at the definitions of these two. Edify means to build up. It's an act of building. Exhorting means to advise strongly, to urge somebody. And to comfort means to encourage or console them. Now, here's the thing. And this is where I wanted to begin to make the distinction. We think of prophecy, prediction, and fulfillment. 
If you follow any of the modern prophets, and those are self-proclaimed titles, mind you, okay? But the election did not follow the narrative of which we were expecting. Is that fair? Because they all make a declaration, Trump's going to win by landslide, he's going to win, yada, yada, yada. He's still mad. But I didn't hear any of them say, oh, he's going to win, but it won't be on the third. You know, this is going to take, I didn't hear any of them say that. Does that mean that they're wrong? Not necessarily. But what I'm saying here is, are we edified, exhorted, and comforted right now? It's a hard thing to say. Because if we rely on the words of the prophet, should we be? Sure. What do we have to worry about? But if we're like, well, they said it, but maybe they're wrong. Listen, here's the thing that we need to understand. If those men, and I assume some women as well, I don't know, had heard from the Lord and are simply saying what God has said, should we find comfort in all of those words that God said what's going to happen? Absolutely. If they didn't, should we not? No. How do we judge? Find out their sin. You see, when it comes to prophecy, we're all able to prophesy. We're all able to, to give a word from the Lord. We're all able to speak on behalf of God. That is what a prophet does. But when we think of edification, exhortation, and comfort, we think of things that make us feel good. We don't think of things that don't make us feel good. And that was the distinction we began to make last week, is understanding that the word from the Lord may not feel good in the moment, but we are not relying upon that word itself, but the overall promise of God. I mean, you remember when, when uh, Joshua, I think it was Joshua, had the dream about the famine that was coming and all of that? Was it Joshua? No, Joshua. Who was it? Joseph. Joseph. It's one of those J guys. I couldn't keep them all straight. Joseph has the dream and all this. is like, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'm sorry, if you come to me saying there's going to be a great famine, you're going to have to store up stuff for seven years because it's going to be bad. That is neither edifying, exhorting, or comforting. Except that in the process of this, God said, hey, I'm giving you seven years to prepare, and don't worry, I'll bring you through it. Now we're edifying, exhorting, and comforting. See, we get too hung up on the words that are spoken instead of the one who is speaking. You guys with me on that? You get that? That is the crux of what we're trying to say, is that it's not the words themselves that are edifying, exhorting, and comforting necessarily. It's the where the words are coming from. They're coming from God. Does God fulfill his promises? So now let's jump over to Hebrews chapter 1. As I said, we're going to begin to transition in a little different direction here. Different than I had planned originally, however many weeks and months ago that I started this whole thing. Because I want to begin to look at something as the Lord has led me here. To understand the times of that we are in and where we need to be. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you all know this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtain a good testimony. Now, here's the question. What is it? See, whatever it is, the elders, referring to pretty much everybody that came before them, because he's going to go on this whole long uh, thing and give names and what they did and all this other stuff. But... What is the it that gave them a good testimony? It's their faith. Faith in what? Well, now we see the definition. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. There's two different things that are going. Substance requires something. So you're hoping for something. The evidence of things not seen. I don't see it. So by this faith, whatever this was, it doesn't define it here. It is what gave them a good testimony. Now look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. <laughs> now, why is it by faith? We weren't there to see it. We're dependent upon the rationality of the fact that this didn't come from nothing, as well as the written documentation that we have explaining who had done it. Did you know that there are other creation stories that are out there in the world outside of God, Yahweh, creating things from nothing? Of course there are. There's tons of them. Does that make those true? Does your faith in that story make it true? No, it doesn't. It, the source matters. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gift, and through it he, uh, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away, so he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs and with him of the same promise. <clears throat> for he waited in that city, or for that city, which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. So therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now this is where it gets odd. Because the last two parts here, when you talk about Sarah, and the last part, how they died in faith. Why were they, did they die in faith? Because they had not received the promise. But yet, they were assured of them, they embraced them, and they confessed them. Why? The promise had not come to fruition. Then we're talking prophecy here. Because God had declared certain things were going to happen and they had not happened. And yet, here it talks about all these great men and women of faith. By faith they did this, by faith they believed that, all of that. Here's the reason. And it says it about Sarah. The faith wasn't in the promise. It was in the one who gave the promise. Now think about that for a minute. Your word is not what people believe. It is your actions that back it up. If I tell you, if you came to me and said, I need $500 by next Thursday, is there any way you can help me out? And I say yes, then if I don't show up, are you going to believe me again? No, of course not. Because my words and my actions don't align. So when we are sitting here talking about the belief in the promises, it's not in the promises, it's in the promise giver. Think about this. In Jeremiah 29, 11, we read this last week. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Boy, we love that, don't we? Sounds so good. But unless you were a first century, or not a first century Jew, but a Jew sitting in Babylon in captivity, waiting to go back to Jerusalem, that word does not apply. So now, Jerusalem has been destroyed, it's been taken under siege, you've been ripped out of the country that you know, everything that you had was there, and now you're at this new place, and Jeremiah says, listen, get comfortable, you're going to be there 70 years, build houses, have babies, do all that kind of stuff. But I know the things I, I planned for you. How is that comforting? Because God had proven himself so many times. It's like when you're talking about the Israelites going through the desert, right? Okay, they watched the ten plagues happen. I don't know how much convincing it would take for me to just simply say, listen, I don't know what he's got planned next, but we're going to be fine. I would like to think maybe plague two. Okay? But he goes one by one, systematically going against the gods of Egypt, bringing all this to a head. Everything that he said was going to happen had happened. To the point that after the tenth one, the attack on the firstborn, the whole Passover scene, that they were released, and they're running through the desert. Pharaoh changes his mind. He goes after them. They get to this Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, if you will. And they're standing there like, well, now what? What are we going to do? <coughs> God says, no, splits it. They walk through. You would think at that moment that if nothing part of that had convinced you, that you were going to be just fine as you're walking through this thing and you're looking on both sides and there's walls of water. I wonder if it was like an aquarium, like where you see like fish swimming by as you're going. I've always wondered that. I'll ask one for one of these days. But you get to the other side, Pharaoh goes in there, it crushes down on him, the chase is over. What more convincing do you need? That God did exactly what he said he would do. Well, apparently a lot more, because no matter what it was, they never stopped complaining. And they were, he was taken up to the promised land. He says, listen, it's yours going to take it. So he sent 12 guys. 10 of them come back like, have you seen the size of those cats? We can't handle this. 
There's no way. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't handle the armies of Pharaoh either, and God took care of it. But no matter what they did, they wouldn't believe because they did not judge him who promised as faithful to his promise. And you know what? That's where we are today. I mean, think about this. Let me read you a verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I am all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Because here's a declaration of fact. That God will supply their needs. Why? Because they've always been faithful to the work of the mission. What God was promising to do. God will supply your needs according to whom? Christ Jesus. So you can give sacrificially. You can, it doesn't matter because your needs are going to be met. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter if there's famine in the land. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what's going on in the stock market. God supplies your needs. And what happens in a down market? Tighten up. Can't give like we used to. The problem is the first thing you know is what we give to God instead of cable. You can't. I don't even know this. You can survive without Netflix, we survive with it at one point in the life. We can survive without it again. We don't tighten our belts. We just kind of go, oh, you know, I can't do that right now. Here's the problem. You either believe that it truly is God who supplies all of your needs, or you don't. If you don't, that's fine. Admit where you are in life and realize that, you know what? I don't believe every promise that God has said. It's just reality where we are. Because you have not judged him faithful who has made the promise. Now, that sounds harsh, but we just have to be honest with ourselves. Is that fair? Because too often we say cute things that make us feel good. It is time for the church to take with feeling so good about itself because we ain't done nothing. We have lost our way. And so as we dig into this a little deeper, we've got to begin to think about what separates us as a church. And when I say us, I mean those like us, the charismatic side of things, believing the gifts of spirit, all of that. What separates us from pretty much every other church across America, certainly, and maybe even the known world? If you were to label it into one thing, what would that distinction be? What is the one thing that we believe that so many struggle with? Yes, sir. That's a good start. Let's drill down on that further. This is the interactive portion of the program. <laughs> yes, sir. Our faith in God. Our faith in God. Good. Drill down further. Be very specific. Right there. Very good. Where I put my money? Ding, ding, ding. Give her a cookie. Actually, a dog. We got plenty of them. <laughs> you guys love my handwriting. I know. You like that random capital L in the middle? <laughs> that is not code for anything. I just write weird. This is the number one thing that separates us from any other church out there. When I, again, I'm, I'm talking about this movement. Now, there are confines inside of this, but if you get away from this subject, you see, most people believe they're going to heaven, right? Hey, I'm going to heaven. How are we so confident? Why are we so confident? I mean, if we're a church in America, and we're judging based off of the fruit that we see, we should be a lot less confident. Because it's crazy out there. It's really crazy out there. But we have no problem accepting that. But this one, we struggle with. And the question always comes down to is, what does God say in the matter? Because I did a series a year ago, it's called Whatever Happened to the Power of God, as we began to drill down, I say, where, where did God go? How did he disappear? Why is he so active in the book of Acts and he take the rest of the time off? Like, what on earth is going on? Because we've got a lot of things that we believe for church history that just frankly is not true. That the gifts have ceased, that there was no evidence of tongues being spoken until the charismatic renewal in the first uh, part of the 19th or the 20th century, which is not true. Because it's all throughout. When you've got uh, guys like John Wesley talking about these very things happening in his meetings and all of this stuff, like that's the founder of the Methodist Church. 
You've been to a Methodist church lately? They've gone a different direction. You see, when you talk about what was separated, you just talk about any one individual thing. This would probably be the biggest because in one way or another, we all believe we're going to heaven. Now, how we get there, we may not agree. But we're going to get there. But when it comes to this, there's basically a couple schools of thought. A, God does not heal. He's out of the healing business. He doesn't do it anymore. He did it at a time when it was only to confirm the word. And now that we have the entirety of Scripture written down, we no longer need those signs, wonders, and miracles. And the most prevalent miracle that God did throughout Scripture was healing. Healing the sick. And so then we've got to deal with the question, well, wait a minute. He said, by his stripes we were healed. Well, that's not physical healing. That is spiritual healing. Someday when you're in glory, you'll be physically healed of all your ailments. I know, I think sounds dumb too. Because again, we just got to allow God's word to be God's word. So we got to deal with that. So there's that one. Then there's the other side of, okay, yes, I'll accept the fact that God does heal because it is hard to deny that there are some miracles that have no explanation whatsoever around the world. But it's only when it's God's will. If it's God's will, he will be healed. If it's not, then he won't, or she won't, or whoever won't. So then we have a problem. Because that falls in the face when we're praying the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So am I praying for somebody to be healed that God doesn't want to heal? And I'm intercessing for them, and I am just really getting into it, and God's will is not to heal them. Am I not praying against God's will? Doesn't that sound like something I shouldn't be doing? It's almost as if God would say, hey, you should know what my will is. Because how can I pray your will be done if I have no way to execute on that if I don't know what it is? So there has to be something in there that I can put confidence in to say, you know what? I know what God's will is. It always comes back to have I judged him who has made the promise faithful. That's really what it comes down to. So let's look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now this is fascinating because this is during the Mosaic Covenant. This is written by David. And what does he say? He says, forget not his benefits. In other words, that when you are a child of the king, there are benefits associated with it. What are benefits? They're not something that you earn or just something that, hey, kind of comes with it. It's an added thing. It sweetens the deal a little bit. You know? One of the benefits of hanging out with me is you're going to eat copious amounts of food. And together, we will grow in stature. <laughs> the teenagers in the back can't admit to this. They all blame me for making them fat. I don't force feed them, but we eat well. I mean, the thing is, is that we got to look at what David's saying. He says he forgives all your iniquities. Is that a true statement? Yeah, we can accept that, no problem. You bet you he does. God does forgive every sin that you've ever sinned, or you're going to sin, or you're thinking about sinning, or that one time you almost sinned, but you didn't quite sin, but you thought about it, so it probably sent you to hell anyway. He forgives that. We don't like the next part. Who heals all your diseases. Well, that's a tough one. Because you know what the word all in Hebrew is? It's a tough one. It means all. <laughs> I know. Mind blown, right? Doesn't mean some, it doesn't mean this one and not that one. He says he heals all your diseases. He's, he's speaking to covenant people right here. He heals all your diseases. So if that is a true statement, we've got to find Because we are not seeing that come to fruition. I mean, is that fair? I'm just being real with y'all. This is something that has plagued me for over a decade. It has bothered me. I said it when I moved here six years ago. I said, listen, I don't have all the answers. I only know what the Word says. And when I look at the Word, this is what I see. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I put this down so I wouldn't screw it up and just randomly go on some rant here, but it's like I believe that God keeps His promises. And I believe that those promises are clearly laid out in His Word, and I believe that God still heals today. I believe that it is God's will to heal everyone, and I believe that God's will to heal everyone was ratified at the cross because I believe that God guaranteed His will and healing through the atonement. I believe that sickness is a result of sin because death is a result of sin. And I believe sickness is nothing more than slow death. 
I believe that sickness is nothing more than an attack from the enemy. I believe that the church today has accepted sickness as a societal norm. I believe the church today has lost the foundation of God's promises. I believe the church today no longer believes the words of God. And I believe the church today is good at making excuses when things don't happen the way they think they ought. Rant over. It's aggravating. Because what happens when we don't see God act the way that we thought he would? We begin to make excuses. You see, it is either God's promise that he is going to heal all, some, or none. There is no in-between. It is his promise. So if he's not healing all, if he's not healing some, or he's not, or he's healing everybody in, in, in the face of this other one, where are the promise lie? It's not your opinion. This is the problem, and this is what brings us back to the word. Is that if we don't know what the word says, then the idea that we have of God is our opinion. I saw a pastor, I put that in quotes, has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. Okay, that is not the point. But she tweeted something out this week that says something to the effect of, we need to quit trying to evangelize marginalized faith groups because they have enough problems. They are coming to God in the way they know. I am. That's dumbed down a little bit from what she said. And I'm sitting there like, are you kidding me? You see, think about this. It is either God's will for all to be saved, or it's not. And some will tell you it's not. Which I find interesting. Because if it's not God's will to be saved, then how do we know who's supposed to be? So if you come from a five-point Calvinistic background where God has either ordained you before the foundation of the world to destruction, or ordained you before the foundation of the world to life ever after, how do you know which one you are in? Oh, because you're the one that came to faith. That's called circular reasoning. These super smart people that believe this kind of stuff, and they are super smart people, would not allow that to fly in any other way. But what do we do? We justify what we see. You realize that you don't have to apologize for God's promises. You don't have, you don't owe anybody an explanation for anything of what God says. You only have to believe what God has said. When I'm telling somebody from a moral standpoint something where Scripture is clear on, and they get upset about it or mad at me, I'm like, I'm just the messenger. You got an issue, take it up with God. If you can persuade him to the other one, hey, I'm gay. Because you realize that in today's culture especially, it is not convenient to be a born-again believer who stands on Scripture. It is, it, it is the most inconvenient thing in the world. But it doesn't negate the truth that's found there. And that's the problem. Is we have forsaken what God has said to chase after and make excuses for. Because we are comfortable. That's just beyond God's honest truth. We are so comfortable in the church today. We just kind of want to we don't want to make God the forefront of our life. We just want to bring him along and fit him in where we want him. I mean, it's hunting season, right? Well, we got a bunch of guys that are out killing stuff today, aren't they? Probably. I assume hopefully they're killing stuff. You're going to go. Well, I was talking about this this morning. This has nothing to do with hunting, but it's the mentality that we have in our culture. Is is oh, hunting season, I'm gone. We make excuses for the things that we want to do. It's like somebody has a problem with swearing. Now they just got temper. Why do we keep making excuses for it? Yeah, that might be true. How about we fix it? How about we fix it? How about we just go back to adopting the idea of like, well, God said it. So I need to deal with this. When we go through scripture, we turn it upside down, we try to make it say things that it doesn't. We're like, I don't know, you know, maybe it's not God's will to heal all. Listen, guys, as we go through this, we're going to examine scripture. It's how we know. We're going to look at it from the proper context and everything. We're going to look and say, is it God's will to heal all today? Because we need to know this. It's not just about healing. It's that if we can't trust God for healing, how can we trust God for salvation? How can we trust God for financial well-being? How can we trust God for anything? The problem is, is the answers sometimes come in ways that we don't think they should. And when we get uncomfortable, we think, oh my gosh, the devil's in that. We assume that if something good happened, it's from God, and something bad happened, our perception of it must be from the enemy. I mean, what do you do? When my wife and I moved to Hastings to go to uh, staff at that church out there, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. I mean, I even wrecked a trailer leaving at 5 o'clock in the morning, half a mile from my house, trying to head out there. You know why I wrecked the trailer I got there? Somebody's like, 
that's an attack from the enemy. He's trying to come against you. He knows what you're going to do here. I'm just looking at him and I said, can I ask you a really serious question? This person met wrong. How does he know anything about the future in my life? He is not all known. He had no answer for that. You know why I wrecked that trailer? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's why I wrecked that trailer. That had nothing to do with the devil. Perhaps I should have loaded it properly. Because the only reason it wrecked is because it was loaded improperly. So, who do I have to blame? Not the devil. He's probably like, yeah, I'll, I'll take credit for that. That'd be great. <laughs> But no, that's not what it was. You see, here's the thing. We, we go around and we're like, oh, you know, this must be what's happening. It's not going right, so it must not be God's will. It must be the enemy. That is not true. Because just sometimes you get uncomfortable. I'm telling you what, everything that could go wrong went wrong. I could go on a long story, just trust me on that fact. But here's the thing. My time there revolutionized the way that I do ministry today. That chaos was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I was very comfortable. Very comfortable. And I didn't even realize it. And I thought I was just on a path, just doing the Lord's work and all of this different stuff. I had blinders on to my own weaknesses that I didn't see. And it wasn't until that moment where I'm cut down at the knees that I recognized, like, oh my goodness, I have been doing this wrong the entire time. So was that the enemy? Was that God? Or did the chickens come home to roost? The truth is, we don't know. But we know that God is fortified in all of it. You see, we have to know what God promises. Now let's look at James chapter 5. Verse 13 says, Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is coming from James. He's the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Brother of Jesus. Kind of a big deal. Did he in any way give any indication that they might be healed? In any way? Is it just, I just want to make sure it's not me. Because when I read James, he's pretty matter-of-fact. If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, sing psalms. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church, and the prayer of faith will make them whole. These are all statements of facts, not statements of not knowing how God is going to respond. Is that fair? Why do you think that is? Because he knew how God was going to respond. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. For himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died of sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Okay? So he's giving this whole expectation of healing. Now, I will dig into this a little bit more, but understand this, that some argue, well, you know, that's talking about spiritual healing, not physical healing. Okay, if that's true, on either side, we should be able to discern it through Scripture. Fair enough? Stick with me for now. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 14 says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Okay, here's Jeremiah, same dude that says, You know, I know the plans I have for you. Same guy. He knows that if God will heal, or God heals him, he's healed. He knows that if God saves him, he's saved. There's no doubt there. There's nothing in his mind that is doubting any of the promises of God. Going back to that other verse that he that he had, it's like, there's no doubt that God will bring you through. You know how many converts and people that Jeremiah was able to convince? You were putting them on, on the list of good to bad, how many people they brought to the Lord. Let's just use that vernacular, because I don't have another one. Exactly zero. And yet he continued to faithfully preach what God had told him. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he, this is Jesus, had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. Now the names of the twelve apostles <coughs> are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the uh, Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. 
These twelve, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Now, Jesus gives them four commands here. Right? Here are the four things that I want you to do. Well, I should say five. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Now, these are all things that they see Jesus do. But there must have been something in that moment when Jesus said, here, I'm giving you power, I'm giving you authority, now I want you to go out, I want you to do the exact same thing. They must have believed him. Because what did they do? They went out. They healed the sick. They cleansed the lepers. They raised the dead. They cast out demons. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the thing is, is that they knew that God had promised through Messiah all the things that they were seeing. They knew that it was to come because they knew the scripture. That's why Jesus got on Nicodemus. Because he knew the scriptures and yet he was still confused. He shouldn't be. You know what the scriptures have said. So here they are, fulfillment of all these promises. They're watching it happen. And their response was to act. Did they do that throughout the entirety of the thing? Absolutely not. At one point, Peter's ready to walk on water. Jesus, if you say, I can come, I can come. He was so convinced that he actually stepped out of the boat. Most of us would be like, that's crazy. Nobody walks on water. I don't care if that guy's doing it. I ain't doing it. It's kind of like if you were going to go jump out of an airplane. You have a parachute. You have some faith in a parachute. You get on an airplane at all. You have faith in a pilot. You have faith in aerodynamics. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but airplanes are very heavy. <laughs> they should not be in the air, and yet they are in the air. Well, we have a lot of faith. Did you ever meet the pilot? Did you ask him for his credentials in any way? He said, now listen, how are your legs? How many hours have you got? No, we get on the plane, we don't even think anything of it. That is how we've got to be with God. Your faith in McDonald's. <laughs> that wasn't even fun. Part. You go to McDonald's. You order a number one, which is a Big Mac. You know what to expect. It's a subpar hamburger. It's going to come out in a moderately quick time, unless you go out here the rough way. <laughs> in which case, you may or may not be a Big Mac. You're going to eat it. It will keep you alive. It's going to taste good. You know it's terrible for you, but your expectations are very low when it comes to McDonald's. You go to a five-star Michelin-rated restaurant, it better taste better than McDonald's. Right? There's, see, there's a confident expectation. If you're confident in the restaurant you go to, you say McDonald's, you don't need to look through the bag to make sure they got your order right. If you look through the bag, as we all do here, it's because they often get your order wrong. Right? <laughs> Anybody look both ways when they're sitting at a one-way street? Oh, yeah. Because we don't trust humanity. I know I'm not alone. You know how I figured that one out? My aunt in Detroit drove me down the wrong way on a wrong one-way street for a mile and a half when she realized it. Yeah, I'm still here. You see, we have, we have faith in so much, but yet we don't even think about it in those terms. Look at Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, think about this. Being anxious for nothing means literally, don't worry about anything. Why do we still have so much anxiety in this country? What on earth? Cold. You ever turn on the light switch and it not turn on? You're like, oh, I, I fully expect the power to not be on. You turn on your water, we have water. You open your fridge and there's food. Right? I mean, especially if you're a kid. It's not a magical food fairy that fills the fridge. That's mom. Maybe dad. Definitely mom in my house. I'm going to empty the fridge out. But to be anxious for nothing. Why? Because the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How can we believe this? It is because of the fact that we know God is faithful. Why don't you worry about it? I mean, there are some people that have caught COVID that's going around and they're immediately freaking out. In fact, I met a man, this is not a believer by any means, but I know I know this guy. He has cancer. He's been getting chemo treatments for a month. He's been freaking out about COVID since the word go. He's got a compromised immune system because he's taking chemo, as you can understand. He was very worried about it. And guess what? 
he got king, or he got killed. And he was panicked. And then day two, he said, I wasn't feeling very good day two. Day three, I was feeling a little bit worse. I can still move, I can still laugh. And day four, I was fine. Now that flies in the face of what all the doctors out there are screaming and all this other stuff. And the question is, is if you're a believer, what do you have to worry about? If you know what scripture says, you know it is God's will to heal. You need to take authority over that and just run with it. Trust in his word. And if for some reason it doesn't, what happens? If it's Christ, die is gained. You're in the arms of the beloved Savior. And you put your faith, hope, and trust in all this time. And you are now seeing the fulfillment of the promise. What do we have to worry about? But yet we freak out all the time. We because we don't truly judge him faith who has made the promise. That's where we are, guys. How do we deal with this? I want to show you something in Matthew chapter 4. Now, I've gone through this before. I want you to understand something that 63 times it says it is written inside the gospel. 63 times, 18 times specifically by Jesus. Every time Jesus used it, uh, used by him, I mean, it's like, it's very powerful. But look at Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. And now the tempter came to him. And he said, if you are the Son of God, command that you stow some bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now think about this. He's hungry. Wouldn't you be? 40 days, 40 nights, I'm ready for something to eat. And so the enemy comes, he says, if you are the son of God, he is demanding that he prove himself. What does Jesus owe him? Nothing. Huh? He says, if you are the son of God, man, these stones become bread. He quotes a passage out of, I think it's Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What was his response? It was written, the word of God. The devil took him, verse 5, in the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in, the hands, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he doubles down. Now he's bringing scripture into play. Jesus responds, it is written again, you should not tempt the Lord your God. You notice he's not yelling. Not freaking out. He's not even wavering. Because now, now you have scripture fulfilling what he is saying. He's using the same thing that Jesus says. Verse 8 The devil took him up exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. You see, Jesus' response was always that of it is written. Why? Because it is written is the capture of the heart, intent, character, and promise of God for the last 4,000 years. Jesus being the Son of God just said, no, no, no. I'm Jesus. Don't mess with me. But he always went back to Scripture. Even when the enemy tried to use Scripture to manipulate, to confuse, to do whatever, Jesus said, but it is written. He always responded with was he anxious? No. Was he confused? No. He said, you're thinking about it? He's like, really? Those stones look pretty tasty. <laughs> you see, he came after him just like he'd done uh, in the garden. He came after him just like he did in the wilderness. These are all things that you could say that Jesus was supernaturally undoing, that the Israelites got wrong. Why did they get it wrong? Because they did not trust the promise of God. Jesus had no doubt. You see, we know that Jesus wasn't just born with the download of entirety of Scripture and he just knew everything. It says that he grew in stature and maturity. So we know that he's growing in these things. Here's the difference. The difference is that Jesus has no doubt in the promise of what God has said. We do not share that. Where we are today, if we're being perfectly honest, is we've got parts of Scripture we believe and we've got parts of Scripture that we don't. Because if we did, it would impact our behavior. If we believe that Jesus is returning soon, we would be a lot more anxious to get out there to those people that are loved ones in our lives that we know don't know Christ. If we believe that. And in the back of our mind, we kind of believe it, but our actions don't match our words. If we believe that it is our responsibility as individuals to go out there and reach the lost and to make disciples, then we would spend at least part of our time doing that. But what do we wait on? We went on somebody to show up and ask us, hey, tell me about this Jesus. That's not how it's done in Scripture. That's like going out to the bank to go fishing and waiting on the fish to jump on the shore. Even, even worse, 
You're sitting in your living room waiting on the fish to get out of the lake and walk up to your house, knock at the door and say, hey, I'm here, you hungry? I mean, that's literally how we act. I know it sounds dumb, but it's true. That is how we act. If we really believe that by the laying on of hands that men would be healed, we'd probably spend a little more time doing it. If we really believe that the Word of God is true in every aspect, we'd probably be a little more conscious of the way that we act and the way that we talk and the way that we perform. But the problem is, is we have not truly accepted the Word. You see, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who it promised is faithful. Is that what we are doing? No, we waver all the time. Now, that may be where we are, but that doesn't mean that's where we have to be. That might be where we are today. And I don't just mean in this, this room, because we're all at different stages in the game and stuff like that. I don't really care where a person is. I care of the trajectory they're going. But in order to get on the right trajectory, we have to be honest with where we are. And too often, we spend more time making ourselves feel good that we're accomplishing things or we're growing or we're doing whatever instead of just being real. I mean, I've worked with a lot of churches through the years and, and help them out with a lot of what they call outreach events. Do you realize that putting on an event of which you can have thousands of people attend does not mean that you are evangelizing the masses. You might just be entertaining the goats. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but just be honest with what you're doing. That you can do this type of activity, but let's not mistake that for evangelism. You might preach the gospel there. People might get saved there and praise the Lord if they do. But evangelism looks different in Scripture. You see, that's the problem. We've convinced ourselves by a, a plethora of activity that we are really doing the Lord's work. And the truth is, we're really not. And we've convinced ourselves by our words that we really believe that God's promises, all of them, are true. And every word of Scripture is 100% accurate without error. We can trust every one of them. But our conscience really dictates that we don't. I went to a church one time years ago, and I, I was preaching at it, and I said, how many of you guys believe that this is the unadulterated inspired word of God that was written down by men. They were inspired by God himself. And every word is breathed by God and every word is 100% true. Everybody, and this is shocking, in the room raised their hand. Shocking. Then I said, how many of you have read every one of these inspired words in order to know what they say to make that truth come? You might be surprised to know very few hands went up. You see, we're claiming something about this when we don't really know. We have defaulted ourselves as an auto-response. They're like, yes, I believe that's inspired word of God. It's kind of like when your waiter or waitress, they bring you your food, and they say, enjoy your meal, and you just automatic response, like, you too? <laughs> like, oh, dumb. Why did I say that? That's kind of what we have. We got a bunch of auto responses, but our faith and our words are not matching. We got to deal with this. What I'm trying to share with you guys, I'm not trying to be hard or harsh or anything like that. We got to get real, because if it is the last day, we're 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 looking at this election and all these promises that were made, and somebody are up emotionally up here and down there, and we're all over the place. Listen, I don't care who the president is. I shouldn't say that. I certainly care. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not going to change what I do. How many churches do you think if they outlaw the true preaching of the gospel and taking moral stand, how many churches do you think will stop? I'd say a bunch. Because we've become a social club. I had somebody a few years ago, we were talking about finances in the church, and they were concerned because there was talks they were going to try to take away the tax exempt status of church. You know, like it's going to drastically impact the giving. I don't know how you keep the lights on or things like that. And I'm like, let them have it. We weren't called to be tax exempt. We're called to be salt line. Like we can meet in homes, we can meet out in the field, we can do whatever. Like who cares? It's a building. We can go anywhere. But we're freaking out. Will it impact the giving of the church? Oh, you bet it will. Because some people literally just give because hey, I made a tax write off. They're as good as anybody else. I mean, we'll take it. But that's not the point. Like we're not moved by that. See, we can't be moved by circumstances. Every one of these examples in Hebrews 11. 
They're not moved by what they saw. They fully committed and trusted the word of the one who gave the promise. So here's where we're going. We talk about healing. It's important because it was a key mark part of the gospel being preached. Jesus went out in their synagogues. He preached the gospel. He healed the sick all throughout Matthew. Those are the steps that he took. We have to deal with the fact that if it is God's will to heal, then we're, or not his will to heal all, that God can, but he doesn't. We got that problem. The other problem we have is many of us have put our faith in healing and not the healer. We put our faith in salvation, but not the savior. And we've got to make distinctions here. So this might be like toe crushing for a while. For me too. Because we just got to be real. I am tired of just making us feel good. They call it virtue signaling. And the church started it, I think. The world has taken over with all the nonsense that's going on. But we just say and do a bunch of stuff to make us feel good. We're so busy with busyness that we've lost the heart of the mission what we should be doing. I think it's time to get back. And if you don't want to, that's cool. It's a light. Most of you. I'm looking at Gary. Well, we just got to get back to the heart of God. And we just got to be honest with ourselves. We can't grow if we won't admit where we are. we got to be honest with where we are. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have each and every week, Lord. We ask for forgiveness for the times in which that we have just taken all of this for granted. We don't have any anxiousness to it, Lord, that we're not we're not endeavoring to go and do the work that you called us to do. Lord, we're just kind of a playing game. So, Lord, I just ask that you quicken our hearts and you you convict us of this, Lord. Of the, the areas that we have not surrendered over to you, of the doubt that we have in our maybe our hearts and our minds, Lord, we're not really fully committed to what you've said and what you've promised. Lord, but we played these games. And so, Lord, I think as we continue through this, that you are going to reveal that to us because you are moving in this place. You are moving in our hearts and our lives, Lord. We want to be more like you, and we want to be more effective for you. So, Lord, we just thank you for this going forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week.